When the U.S. government was trying in the summer of 2016 to figure out what Russia was doing to disrupt America's presidential election, a key man in the middle was James Clapper. He was director for national intelligence and had the thankless job of collecting everything the U.S. intelligence community knew about the Russian attack and making sense of it. Clapper learned a lot more than he could say publicly, but he dropped some intriguing clues in his new book, Facts and Fears. We'll talk to him, and we'll also discuss some good news and potentially very bad news for President Trump on his birthday on today's edition of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So we're going to start out uh, today with our esteemed colleague, Hunter Walker, um, because nobody knows uh, Donald Trump and the Trump presidency better than he. And this was a clearly a big week uh, for the president, going from the Singapore summit, flying back to get the uh, to learn that he's been sued by the uh, New York Attorney General and on his birthday. On his birthday, no less. Um, and that kind of took the... Um, uh, it took the shine a bit off the uh, Justice Department IG report reaming out his nemesis, former FBI director James Comey. So, Hunter, was this a uh, good birthday or a bad birthday for <laughs> Donald Trump? Well, you know, it's it's been, a, as, as it so often is, an incredible week with so much going on. Um, you, you had the Singapore summit, which... Um, Trump is trying to frame as a big win for him, a big uh, diplomatic victory. We're safe now. Um, of course, critics of Trump say we didn't get much. It wasn't that substantive. And, you know, he's now on North Korean TV saluting a general from that country. You then had Michael Cohen switch his legal team. So that's one of the other swirls of investigations surrounding the president. And then the a lot of speculation that Cohen might flip. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little more cautious on that. But um, that was that was yesterday's development. And so now we go into today and, and we knew this IG report was coming out. I think the Trump team has really, really been looking forward to it um, because, as you said, it, it kind of, uh, you know, attacks Jim Comey and his conduct. And it also talks about these two FBI agents, uh, Peter Strzok and, and Lisa Page, or she was an FBI attorney who, you know, had all of these personal communications revealing their bias against Donald Trump while they were intimately involved with each other and also with the investigation into his campaign's alleged collusion with Russia. Uh, so this is just going to provide a ton more ammo for Trump to do what he's been doing all along, which is to try to undercut the Mueller investigation and the FBI and to portray uh, the FBI as being out to get him and fundamentally corrupt. And, right, and, right. And there was a damning new text message we hadn't seen before, right? Yeah, where I believe it was Strzok said, uh, you know, Page had expressed fear to Strzok that P Trump might become president. And he said, no, no, we'll stop him. Um, so these were these were unquestionably two members of the FBI. And within the report, we've learned there were others who had anti-Trump sentiments. But it's, it's important to note that the inspector general um, did ultimately conclude that in spite these instances where they exchanged these unprofessional messages, um, using their work devices to do so, that ultimately political bias did not play a role in the handling of the investigation. Investigation. But it, but as you point out, Dan, you know, we're in this world uh, of, of hyper polarization and, and the truth doesn't necessarily matter, um, even though this report ultimately, you know, concluded that bias didn't play a role in the handling of either the Trump investigation or the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, the president did get a birthday gift here because he can use this, um, particularly among his base, to 
you know, advance the narrative that the FBI probe is a witch hunt. And we've already seen him launch a couple of tweets on this, including uh, the one that I was trying to show you before that is just um, really a classic of the Donald Trump Twitter form, where, you know, he says that this shows that there was no collusion in what he called the quote unquote fabricated no crime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the no crime. Yeah. So, you know, in talking, in, in hearing the statements from his foundation and also talking to sources close to the president, they were they were incensed that the New York attorney general would, you know, drop this other major news bomb on the president's birthday and hours before this IG report they really, was supposed to come they, out. Did they, wait, 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 wait. Did they cite his birthday? Um, a source speaking to me did. And they said, um, you know. Uh, something along the lines of "There's no bounds; these people won't stoop to." <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the that the lawsuit was timed uh, for uh, the president's yeah, and, birthday. And that that stretches uh, credulity a bit. The, the newly minted AG in New York, who who has um, cited a desire to aggressively take on Trump, did um, actually address this, and she said it was just a coincidence that it happened. But to it be sort of birthday. does like uh, there are sort no of underscore the image of of I mean. And his his the whoever said this to you presumably is someone who is a supporter of his, but it does kind of still portray him as the petulant little child who you know is you know they do this on my birthday. I mean that's just it's just incredible. Well, also there's a through line through all of this, right? Through the FBI raid on Michael Cohen, through the uh, larger Russia probe, through you know um, the New York Attorney General even, where no matter what the president has done. No matter what he's accused of doing, he sees himself, his supporters see him as completely innocent, and everyone else has these deep state conspiratorial ulterior motives. And at, at some point, I guess, yeah, people need to ask, at what point isn't it a coincidence? Well, let's talk about what this lawsuit actually alleges. Um, what 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 is the basic um, contention here? Yeah, so you know this investigation started over two years ago in the middle of the 2016 campaign as questions started to come up about the president's personal charitable foundation, um, and they've been digging deep now. Two attorney generals, uh, the current one Barbara Underwood and her disgraced predecessor Eric Schneiderman, who, um, as listeners probably heard, left last month um, after facing a bunch of abuse allegations. Um, after digging deep, they found that the foundation was essentially a quote-unquote personal checkbook for the president. The board was supposed to include President Trump, his eldest son, Don Jr., Eric Trump, Ivanka Trump, and an unnamed uh, Trump Organization employee. But uh, the suit alleges that the board didn't even have that. It was the, effectively the board, they basically say the board was a sham. They call yeah, it. They, they call it an empty shell. Yeah, and they, they say there's there was like no oversight by like the board of directors. Yeah, they, they, they say it had run by Trump. They himself. say it hadn't met in years. Right. Which, by the way, could be a vi that's one of the um, claims in this suit is that you know there's an obligation that board of directors sign on to where they have a fiduciary duty by law to conduct oversight. And they did not do it in this case because according to this suit, it was basically just President Trump deciding what to give money to and writing the checks himself. Just making clear. Yeah, th yeah. Th this foundation existed um, starting in 1987. Wow. Um, and most of the um, actions cited, so there's basically five specific payments the foundation made that are at issue in this lawsuit. They were done from like 2008 um, up until 2016. Yeah, but the but the most serious ones, or the mm -hmm. ones that got my attention at least, were, was the fact that the foundation, a five hundred one c three charity, was being used for blatantly political purposes. That the whole raising money for veterans was being done to promote Trump's campaign. Uh, this was during the time of the Iowa caucus, and Corey Lewandowski who is Trump's campaign manager, is dictating to the foundation what checks it should write and when they should write them. Yeah, and so basically the accusation in here is that Lewandowski, and they have this email, said, hey, let's make sure to give money to veterans charities in Iowa right ahead of the caucuses, which, as listeners know, was the first nominating contest of the 2016 primary. Basically, this all started with Trump's feud with Megyn Kelly. Um, he thought that this former Fox News anchor was biased against him, and he refused to participate in the Republican primary debate in late January 2016 on the eve of the Iowa 
Iowa caucuses. Instead, he said, I'm going to host this veterans fundraiser. And that fundraiser raised about $6 million that was to be distributed to veteran groups through his foundation. But what the lawsuit alleges is that you know, the foundation, quote unquote, allowed itself to be co-opted for these political purposes and that members of the Trump campaign actually picked which charities to give money to. And as as documented in that Lewandowski email, when to do it and to do this for maximum political leverage. And there's a whole part in this lawsuit where they talk about the giant novelty checks that Trump had and how he would use these at campaign rallies. So they basically say that the foundation and this veterans fundraiser became a political vehicle for Trump and they used used a rarely, rarely employed New York law to basically say this was self-dealing. And that's actually the one part of the lawsuit that doesn't name the rest of the board, the Trump family. It just names the president. So, you know, Isikoff, this actually brings up um, an issue that you wrote about during the campaign, um, which was the uh, what you predicted at the time was that there would be so many lawsuits and criminal investigations swirling around uh, Trump, if he became president, which of course he did, that you know he would he'd just be tied up in litigation. It and- would be a litigation circus, to quote the headline on my piece from 2015. <laughs> uh, yeah, about and- what uh, right. would happen if Donald Trump was elected president, and that seems to be. Um, uh, I mean, he could be deposed. First of all, we, we you know still a chance that he'll have right. to talk to Mueller. Uh, he he could be presumably he he could be deposed in the emoluments. Um, lawsuits and now this, right? Um, I mean, you and know, then all the various. But of course, he won't have. To, of course, private he, lawsuits. Of course, he won't have to prepare because it's all about it. It's all <laughs> right. about attitude, like yeah. you said about North Korea. He, he, he has one of the great minds, one of the great minds, one of the great memories. <laughs> well, but but it's you know it's important as we talk about this litigation circus. Um, the New York Attorney General is actually really an interesting figure in all of this because you know. The Trump Foundation has fired back saying, oh, you know, they're just out to get us. And it is true that Schneiderman launched this flurry of lawsuits against Trump, um, attacking various um, executive orders and regulatory steps he's taken. But also Trump had a longstanding feud with Schneiderman. Right. Schneiderman is the one who, you know, filed the New York lawsuit against Trump University, alleging it was a quote unquote sham. And he did settle that. He did. Well, he he settled a separate lawsuit filed to get by um, students of Trump University for 25 million. But yes, Schneiderman declared victory on that front. But most importantly, I think there's a really, really crucial thing here. Um, Barbara Underwood, the current AG, has taken up this effort that Schneiderman launched to get rid of what she's calling the double jeopardy loophole in New York. You know, this this double jeopardy loophole basically prevents them from filing state charges against people who've already faced federal charges and been convicted on those crimes. But how does that apply here? Well, what it would mean is that if Trump pardons anyone in the various, you know, series of uh, fronts where he's fighting legal battles, um, they could still face charges in New York. So, you know, you were saying earlier, there's this question of will Michael Cohen flip? Will Paul Manafort flip? We've seen some people agree to cooperate. And if Barbara Underwood is successful in persuading the legislature to change the laws in New York, it won't matter if those people are pardoned by the president. Uh, He won't have that chip to sort of prevent them from cooperating. But I think it's likely, I could be wrong about this, but I think it's likely that the Trump folks will challenge this lawsuit because while the Supreme Court has ruled that a, um, a president is not immune from civil litigation in federal court, um, I think it's still an open question about state court. So whether a challenge would succeed or not, I don't know, but it seems it's to me that most more... state judges would follow uh, federal, federal precedents. Um, I mean, they don't have to, right, right. but I mean, if but you're not immune in federal challenges. court, sure. I yeah, mean, they can a... sort of delay um, by, yeah. by challenging in that way. Yeah, no, I do I... think it's serious. I, I, I think this is a serious um, uh, lawsuit uh, that's likely to have legs. We'll be talking about this for quite some time, but at the same time, um, this IG report came out, mm-hmm. and it is really tough on Comey. Um, yes, it, the report does not um, support the conspiracy theories of Sean Hannity about uh, how there was a, uh, a conscious conspiracy to block Trump from becoming president, but it does say that uh, tr- uh, tr- uh, Comey's actions 
were, were, were extraordinary and insubordinate uh, for not uh, uh, informing the Justice Department what he planned to do when he made that press statement in July about Clinton, and it really takes the FBI to task for its handling of the uh, of the emails, the Comey and the, uh, the yeah, FBI as a whole. The main uh, pieces of Comey's conduct that were slammed in this report are, you know, when he went forward and announced that he wasn't charging Hillary Clinton with um, anything, in um, even though he said she was, quote unquote, careless in her handling of the emails. And then when he went back right on the eve of the election and in response to um, emails that were found on Anthony Weiner's laptop when the sort of underage uh, nudes investigation was opened against him, he said, OK, well, you know, they're emails relevant to Clinton on there and we're sort of reopening that case. And they quickly announced it was shut. But, you know, the Clinton campaign has long thought that this cost them the election because it was so much louder, the story that uh, the investigation had reopened than, you know, the following one that it was closed again. And so they take Comey to task for this pretty hard. Right. And, and what's amazing to me is the report confirms that th- those emails on uh, the Wiener laptop were discovered by September 28th and were known to the highest levels of the FBI, including probably Comey, although he's a little sketchy about what he remembered. Um, And then nothing is done until the last week in October when the case agent on um, on the Wiener laptop uh, case, Wiener's being investigated for child pornography, is so frustrated, he goes to the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, which then alerts the Deputy Attorney General's Office in Washington, which then calls in the FBI and says, hey guys, what are you doing about this? Right, so, so right. Let, let's break down what happened here and why so it's so... Thr- oh, nearly a month. It, yeah, it's a month, which in a, which, in a, which in a presidential campaign is an eternity. Yeah, and right. this is what the Clinton people, I think, justifiably are going to seize on because uh, if uh, they had concluded, say, the first week of October, uh, because we know how long it ultimately took them, but if they concluded this, say, the first week of October, that there wasn't any there there, then Clinton would have had the chance to recover. And instead, what happens is in the last days of the presidential election, the whole specter uh, of uh, the Clinton email scandal is back before everyone, and they think that was decisive. But let's break down why so much of this is important for Trump, because obviously, you know, a, a chunk of this report was about essentially how James Comey hurt Hillary Clinton, which you would think would have helped Trump and would not be a good thing for him to have that come out now. But A, it fits with Trump's narrative that the FBI has just acted improperly, this whole no collusion witch hunt narrative he's had in response to the Mueller probe. But also, if you'll remember, one of the issues that Trump is being investigated for is his firing of Comey and whether that was obstruction. And his line has always been, you know, he fired Comey because Comey handled the Clinton investigation badly. Except when he was saying that he fired Comey because Russia was on his mind. And when he told uh, the Russian foreign minister and the Russian (laughs) foreign minister uh, that that, um, he he fired Comey because of this Russian thing and it took great pressure off of him. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, the initial official White House line on the firing was essentially that President Trump was this valiant defender of Hillary Clinton and they'd done her wrong. So he had to get rid of Comey. And then as you point out, he did this interview with Lester Holt where he essentially slipped up from that and said, you know, quote unquote, this Russia thing, that's a direct quote, was on his mind when he fired the FBI director. I'm with you. I think the the nuance is lost. the, The bottom line for Trump here is... Comey bad, Comey reamed by Justice Department IG, uh, excoriated for his conduct. That's good for uh, for Donald Trump. All told, uh, was it a good birthday or a bad birthday for the president? I mean, the way you said it just then, you know, with his hardcore base of 25 percent, they'll believe anything. Hey, I got to say anything that he gets uh, that that is going to provide this much um, fodder for. Uh, uh, morning 
early morning tweets. That's a good birthday for Donald Trump. <laughs> F- FBI bad, Trump good. That's the lady coming out of the cake. All right. Uh, Hunter Walker, thanks for joining us once again. Thanks for having me. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. And we are joined now by James Clapper, um, the uh, former chief of intelligence, director of uh, national intelligence, DNI, for President Obama, following a long career in the U.S. intelligence community and the U.S. military. Uh, Director Clapper, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks very much for having me. I want to start out uh, with uh, a subject that you are an expert on. On and didn't I didn't know that until reading your book, and that's Korea. You were the chief intelligence officer for many years for the U.S. military in Korea. Um, and so I want to get your thoughts on the um, n- amazing news over the past week about President Trump's uh, summit in uh, Singapore. Yes, it was a momentous thing, and uh, actually I, I was uh, supportive of... Uh... President Trump accepting Kim Jong-un's invitation, if one ever was actually conveyed. And the reason is, uh, uh, is a visit that I uh, was on to Pyongyang in November 2014, which really uh, profoundly affected my thinking about North Korea. And it just struck me how stuck on their narrative the North Koreans have been, and frankly, how stuck on our narrative we have been. And emblematic of that was the talking points that I was instructed to recite to the North Koreans, the first one of which was, you must denuclearize before we'll talk to you. Well, that was a non-starter when I was there. And it just occurred to me that uh, in this uh, relationship that the bigger of the two partners was going to have to make the first move, meaning the United States. So uh, to President Trump's credit, uh, he did that. Um, I don't think he uh, capitalized on uh, the huge uh, concession that he made simply by meeting with Kim Jong-un. The North Koreans have long uh, craved a personal direct meeting with uh, a sitting uh, president of the United States. And he granted that, and I don't think he extracted enough uh, from the uh, North Koreans for just doing that. Well, there's been a lot of criticism saying that the uh, communique really uh, indicates uh, has no concessions by the North Koreans. There's no reference to uh, verifying uh, denuclearization inspectors. Um, is do you share the uh, that critique? Yeah, I do. I I had fully expected that the phrase uh, "complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization" would be a, a part of the language of the of the joint communique. It'd be very interesting to know if the U.S. side attempted to have that language inserted in the communique, and if the North Koreans pushed back, and why. Uh, I think that'd be very uh, useful uh, to know. The other thing that the president unnecessarily gave, gave up or offered to give up were the, the so-called war games uh, in uh, South Korea. And the reason it was unnecessary is, first of all, these are posited on an invasion by the North into the South. We've been doing them for decades. I participated in them when I served there in the mid-'80s, and we've done them the same every year. And the North Koreans fully understand the nature of the scenario that it is a reaction to an invasion from the north. Secondly, everyone needs to understand that when you serve in Korea, at most you're serving there for two years. Most American military members are there for a year on an unaccompanied tour. So the turnover is constant. So readiness and that training is is very important. What I would have suggested had I been asked, which I of course wasn't, would be that uh, if Kim Jong-un brought up how very provocative, which is the North Korean phraseology, by the way, same phraseology they use with me to describe those exercises, if President uh, Trump had reacted by saying, understand your concern, I'm inviting you to come observe an exercise and bring anyone with you you want. And by the way, it would be a, a positive gesture if you would invite us to observe one of your major exercises. But just sort of 
uh, summarily d- uh, giving up uh, so-called war games, I think, was uh, gratuitous and unnecessary. Even referring to them as war games was a diplomatic faux pas, wasn't it? It is because, again, you're playing to the uh, North Korean uh, phraseology. Um, let's uh, uh, let's go to Russia because you spent a lot of time uh, in the book talking about the uh, Russian election, uh, uh, Russian attack on our election. Um, and there was one line in the book that um, leapt out at me because it's never been – uh, clear precisely uh, how the Russians transmitted the DNC and Podesta emails that it uh, hacked to WikiLeaks. Um, that's always been a gap in the story. How did they get there? But in the book, uh, there was something about the way you worded it. I want to ask you in April, this is April of 2016, Russia used a third party cutout to send more than 19,000 DNC emails and more than 8,000 documents to WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, attempting to cover its tracks and to give WikiLeaks some degree of deniability in knowing the source of the leaks. That suggested to me that you know who the cutout was. Um, Well, uh, we had a suspect, um, but I can't uh, divulge that. Um, a suspect and, and, and didn't in the book, for right? Um, but is the suspect um, presumably that's known to Robert Mueller? So if he's going to bring an indictment against the people who did the hack, um, the suspect would be within his uh, orbit. Well, I, I I'm uh, like you. I, I can only speculate uh, that, uh, and I don't know um, whether. You know the suspicions we had at the time were uh, conveyed, or whether or whether they were validated. How uh, confident were you that your suspect was <laughs> the guy or well, the pretty woman? confident at the time, but um, again, not sufficient enough to publicize it. Does does uh, uh, that if that suspect turned out to be the cutout, the third party, um, would that uh, tell you or Mueller anything about? Um, about collusion between the Trump campaign? Not necessarily. Um, but just because, to... because the cutout wasn't connected with the campaign. Okay. In, and... in any event, whoever it was, I, I don't. Uh, you know, the, we, well, at least we never saw any evidence. Of and that. and and is the suspicion that the cutout was a knowing accomplice? Uh, of the Russians, or did the, the cutout just receive well, the documents unknowing? I'm quite sure that uh, whoever it was was witting. Was a witting accomplice. Um, interesting. You um, also you also say in the book that Julian Assange, uh, the head of uh, WikiLeaks, uh, uh, would have known the source of the emails. That you had no no doubt about that. Um, you mean? What do you mean? The the, the cutout uh, or or uh, where the emails came where from? Where the emails came from? Well, um, again, don't have proof of that. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, he, he's an intelligent man, and he could sort of figure that out. But empirical proof of that, no. But your know. point is that he. You, but you the point, was... well, the real point was that uh, you know it was an attempt to, as I said in the book, uh, ensure him uh, plausible deniability. Um, now it, it's uh, it's quite fascinating in reading the book about how you. Um, learned uh, about what the Russians were up to and how the intelligence hardened. And you became, um, uh, and you've become quite outspoken about this. But when the WikiLeaks first started dumping those DNC emails in the summer of 2016, you sort of minimized what was going on a bit, at least at first. The week of the DNC convention, you spoke at the Aspen Security Conference and um, uh, as as I wrote uh, with uh, my co-author David Korn in the book Russian Roulette, to the surprise of many in the audience, Clapper seemed dismissive of the importance of the DNC hack. No one should be, quote, hyperventilating, Clapper said then. Yeah. He then added sarc- sarcastically, I'm shocked somebody did some hacking. That's never happened before. Clapper was even nonplussed about the idea Russia was seeking to disrupt the election, saying this isn't terribly different than what than what went on in the heyday of the Cold War 
And you know who picked up on those remarks? Um, RT, Russia Today. Their headline on your comments was, U.S. Intel head calls for end to hyperventilation over Russia's alleged role in DNC hack. Well, that's uh, those statements, uh, I think, were emblematic of, um, you know, uh, the response to uh, FAQ, frequently asked question I get, you know, when... Did the light bulb go on? When did you know? When was the grand revelation that uh, of what, the whole magnitude of what the Russians were doing? And for me, at least, uh, just speaking on my on my behalf, that this was a, a gradual thing. As as time went on, and we uh, gathered more information, gained more insight into the magnitude of what the Russians were doing. So. Yeah, at the time of Aspen, which I guess was in the summer, uh, July or something of 16, uh, I'm not sure, at least I didn't, uh, maybe others did, but for my part, I didn't, uh, you know, didn't understand the magnitude and scope of what they were doing. And the problem here, of course, there's a long history of the Russians interfering in our election. So a certain amount of it was kind of the ambient noise level. Uh, we expected it anyway, and it just but nothing it took, like what happened. It took time, that I year. think, to see uh, again the full the full picture as we gained more and more collection, more and more insight, understood better uh, the magnitude of what we're doing in, in the late summer, and and of course into the fall of sixteen. Um, another uh, uh, episode uh, from that summer, a little later on, is uh, by August. Uh, President Obama is. Um, uh, has asked the NSC uh, to, co- to to deliberate about potential responses. Uh, and uh, it's a highly secretive process. Um, some people on the NSC staff really wanted to strike back hard. Michael Daniel, who's chief of cyber, uh, uh, cyber uh, for the White House, proposed these really aggressive op- options of going after Russian news sites, denial of service uh, attacks, um, uh, exposing on websites some of what uh, the uh, U.S. government knew about the corruption in Putin's mm-hmm. government and his family. And um, there was pushback. And part of that pushback was you kind of gave a warning to the NSC about what could happen if things got out of control, Um, uh, if there was a full-scale cyber war between the United States and Russia and the threat that could pose to our electric grid. Well, the... I didn't. I don't believe I ever got that specific. Uh, the The general concern was that the United States' general approach, at least heretofore, has been in the cyber realm, to be circumspect, uh, surgical, precise, and legalistic. Uh, in other words, try to be as precise as possible. In uh, if if you are to retaliate, the problem with that is you cannot count on an adversary of the likes of Russia or Iran or North Korea, let's say, to be equally circumspect and precise and surgical and legalistic. So you never under, you never quite, you have this great difficulty gauging how, the, how will they counter-retaliate. And unless you have confidence in your ability to absorb and be resilient after an attack, you want to be re- really careful, uh, in my view, and in the view of others about... Uh, retaliation. That's why uh, we typically don't react that way or haven't in the past, and we use other tools, principally sanctions, when we want to convey a message to somebody who is um, doing bad things to us in the cyber realm. So that's a general, I think, general concern, just in, in any event. Now, with specific reference to this case with, with the Russians meddling in the, in the election, one is, of course, the concern if we make a big public thing about it, um, are we amping up or, or magnifying what the Russians were doing? And second, and I think this is the bigger concern for President Obama personally, was uh, his uh, concern, worry about putting uh, seemingly or the optic of put his, putting his hand on the scale of the election in favor of one candidate and to the disfavor of the other against the backdrop of uh, Mr. Trump 
uh, already alleging or asserting that the election would be rigged, kind of prepping the battlefield, to use a military expression, uh, for the anticipated eventuality that he would lose the election. So in, in that charged political environment, and the other factor that played in this was the difficulty in securing a uh, full-throated uh, bipartisan expression of public concern, you know, and, and by branch, meaning legislative and executive branch. And we ran into uh, in, challenges you know, there. In retrospect, um, uh, do you think it was a mistake uh, <clears throat> not not to uh, uh, retaliate? Um, that 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 it, that in some ways that in emboldens the Russians well, to continue doing what they per, did. Just personally, uh, my view, my own personal uh, position was that I would have preferred we'd been more assertive and done something more aggressive before the election. We did such, after the election. Such as what? Well, some of the actions we took after the election. Right. Uh, you were in PNGing the, mm -hmm. the intelligence operatives, closing the dotches, Sanctions, that sort of thing. Although I believe which you we wrote, didn't, didn't do that until the 29th of but, December. But you do write in the book you didn't even think that that was enough. That, uh, well, no, you, I thought, thought we I thought that would that. simply be a, a first phase. That uh, my anticipation, we do that, and then we would hand off uh, to the next administration, and that they would continue. Um, but on the point about, um, I mean, that was my own right. personal. Of course, you thought the next administration was going to be the Clinton <laughs> administration. No, I no. actually, I, I mean, by at that point, even, even after the election, I okay. felt that way, right. and uh, I knew the, I knew who the president was going to be, and I, mm -hmm. I still thought that the next next administration would do something mm -hmm. about it, just mm -hmm. because what it meant to the, the fundamental pillars of mm -hmm. our system. Uh, General, I want to ask you about um, a, a figure uh, who uh, you know, is an important figure in the in the whole Russia story, and that's someone um, who you know well, who you respected, who you. Um, uh, elevated into senior positions in the intelligence community. That's General uh, uh, Mike Flynn, um, who became the national security advisor under Trump and um, who was later indicted for um, uh, lying to the FBI about his uh, uh, conversations with the Russian ambassador. Um, what do you think happened uh, to, uh, to to Mike Flynn? Because you were close to him, and you, I think, thought he was one of the finest intelligence officers of of his generation. Yeah, whenever I'm asked about Mike Flynn, I always start by uh, acknowledging, saluting his uh, decades of uh, military service, and Mike was reputation in uh, in uh, intelligence circles as a very, very competent professional. A tactical intelligence officer, and, and all kinds of deployed time, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, all to his credit. And you're right, I was a supporter of his. I co-officiated at his promotion ceremony at Three Star, Lieutenant General, wonderful ceremony at the Women's Memorial in Washington. And uh, he worked for me for 11 months and was fine. Uh, I supported him for um, uh, his move to and designation as director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, an agency I had been director of in the early 90s. So, I, you know, I cared about it. But then you fired him. I did. Uh, both Dr. Mike Vickers, who was my successor as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, and I agreed that um, it wasn't working out. And uh, so we met with Mike and told him that we're going to end his, uh, his term after two years. And Why was That's it? important because... And that meant he had three years in grade as lieutenant general, which is what you need to retire in that grade and, and receive the compensation, retired pay for that. Why wasn't it working out? Well, for my part, is because of the impact uh, he was having on the uh, workforce at uh, the uh, rank and file uh, employees and military members uh, in DIA. And it was causing morale issues. And I just thought, it wasn't going to. It wasn't going to work. And so the best thing I I could do in my position, and and Dr. Vickers agreed. Uh, he had other concerns about uh, Mike Flynn that it was best to uh, end it. Wasn't one of the issues was that he, was... he? I will say, just to finish the story here, that uh, had a wonderful retirement ceremony for him in uh, July 14, and uh, I thought he was fine. Now you asked the original question was, what happened to him? Well, I don't know. I uh, lost contact with Mike after that. Uh, I do think he, I surmise, this is just my speculation, that he uh, b became an angry man and it, it ate at him. He, and uh, 
That's and he took it out against the uh, very critical of the Obama administration in general, and uh, was looking to latch on to any Republican candidate. Was uh, advising several of them, and then he somehow connected with uh, Mr. Trump, and the rest mm-hmm. was history. I have two follow up questions about this because. There's some suggestion that some of this might have been happening when he was still at DIA because I think he was – I think you say in his book that he was chasing conspiracy theories, what people had called uh, well, Flynn, what called, Flynn called Facts. Well, it was called Flynn Facts and, yeah. and uh, in fact, you know, one example was uh, pushing the theory that the Iranians were behind the Benghazi attack, which they weren't. And so you know, he wanted his analytic force to go out and find the evidence to support his conclusion. Well, that's kind of not the way you do uh, do intel, and then and ab- there was a, a general. Uh, you know, p- people felt he was erratic, and Mike, you know, very energetic, had a lot of great ideas. But you can't just impose, uh, uh, you know, another dozen new ideas every day. And, and when you're running a big organization uh, mm-hmm. such as DIA, but one thing I thought was fascinating in the book uh, is, is that at some point you actually warned him about being i think your word was wooed yeah. by the by the russians and this well, was this was before i think he had gone to moscow and and right. sat next to putin at a, at a dinner well, that, that happened after he was retired right. he, he was still so, he was still director of dia yeah. and yeah. as uh, you know the counterpart organization in in russia is the gru which is the nominal uh, analog to our dia and so when i was director of dia in the early 90s uh, they wooed me you know they wanted to have a, a good relationship and i visited there and they had me into their headquarters and you know same thing they they did with him and i just offered some uh fatherly advice you know just to be careful about that because they have ulterior motives well in in retrospect does any part of you you know after the the things he said the the, the going to moscow uh sitting next to putin the the the, the meetings and contacts with kislyak any part of you think that he was um, successfully recruited? No, I don't. I don't okay. think he was. Uh, I don't, no, I don't. Okay. Was he a useful idiot? Well, I wouldn't use that phrase to uh, describe Mike. I, I think he was uh, genuinely thought that uh, there could be a better relationship with with Russia, uh, something he, a view he held in common with uh, now President Trump. Um, let's talk about your relationship with President Trump. Uh, and I was surprised to read that the day after the election, after the election, you wrote him a letter of congratulations and pledging on behalf of the intelligence community our unswerving commitment to provide the best intelligence we can muster. Again, my congratulations with great respect. You closed right. uh, the letter. Um, what went wrong? Well, I. I don't know. What, uh, I don't know. It, it, some would take issue with uh, your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just uh, quoted from your letter. Well, I, well, in fairness, uh, I think the letter also did say that we were going to speak truth to power. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe a, that was it. Yeah, the, the, the <laughs> most important line uh, you left out. Yeah, th- thank you. <laughs> well, Danny, I'm, uh, I'm his editor, so. uh, <laughs> yeah. Actually, it wasn't my idea. Somebody suggested it might, as a courtesy to the president-elect. Uh, a note to accompany um, his first presidential daily brief. So after the and this is a custom we've followed for decades with new presidents. And when they are elected, in fact, we had positioned two teams the night before the election, ready to brief as quickly as as they wanted it uh, a president's daily brief. So we had one position for um, Hillary Clinton and one for Donald Trump. And the one for uh, Hillary Clinton came home, and the other deployed. And I wrote two identical notes, almost identical notes to each of them, depending on who won the election, which basically said the same thing. Uh, pledging the intelligence community's unswerving, uh, uncompromising support, provide them all the uh, intelligence that we possibly could to help them with uh, uh, the heavy decisions they'd have to make and, uh, you know, the, the risks that are involved in making decisions as president. And it was my hope that he would uh, not only accept, but em- embrace and protect the principle, or words of that effect, uh, uh, truth, uh, telling truth to power. And the intelligence community would always uh, strive to do that. And yet um, your respect for the president-elect uh, began to fade pretty quickly. Well, uh, 
I had concerns about him through the campaign, just his behavior during the campaign. But uh, obviously what really set it off was his news conference on the, uh, I think the 11th of January, or 10th of January, I'm sorry, uh, 10th or 11th, somewhere in there. And uh, when he referred to the uh, intelligence community as Nazis, uh, accusing the intelligence community of leaking the dossier, the infamous dossier, which, of course, is absurd since the dossier was widely available to many media channels and was available to at least two members of Congress. And it wasn't an intelligence document, wasn't classified. So the notion of our leaking that was kind of absurd anyway. So I just felt an obligation, a duty on behalf of the intelligence, the men and women in the intelligence community to uh, call him about that uh, and, and defend him. And so, and so I did. Um, speaking of the dossier, you mention in the book that you don't learn about it till relatively late in the game. Right. And in December, when uh, then CIA director uh, Brennan tells you about it. That's right. Um, and you didn't know that it had been commissioned and paid for by the Clinton campaign and the DNC. That's correct. And some people might, upon reading that, say, um, Okay, you learn about this these series of memos that makes these pretty shocking claims uh, that uh, the president-elect has actually been compromised by the Russians. Um, don't you want to know everything about that document, where it came from, how it came to be written, um, and what the credibility of the sources was in order to determine whether it's true or not? Um, well, the facts are uh, that it was funded at some point uh, in its evolution by uh, both Democrats and Republicans. To me, the dossier was not the 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 Republicans had the, helped the, had the hired the, the operations GPS. research that was done that uh, yeah. that evolved into the dossier, as I understand it, was funded by both. But to me, that's not. Uh, and no, it didn't occur to me to ask. Maybe you know, I shoulda, coulda, woulda, shoulda. I didn't. But to me, the most important thing was um, what were the sources of it and the reason we did not use it in the intelligence community assessment that we rendered on the 6th of January was because we couldn't validate the second, third order uh, assets that were used to compile the 17 memos of the dossier. And the other thing is, was anything in it corroborated? Those two factors far more important to me than the pedigree of where it was funded. What's the answer to the second question? What, uh, could you corroborate? Yeah, what was some in of it? what was in it was corroborated in the intelligence community assessment that we we produced on the sixth of January. Others, particularly the salacious material, we could never corroborate or rebut either way. On the question of and uh, as time has gone on, Michael, I might yeah. point out it seems that more and more of what was in the dossier uh, has been uh, corroborated. What what in particular? Well, the the strong animus uh, for the Clintons, right? And uh, there were other things, which I'm not going to go into here, that, you know, seem to have been uh, substantiated. I'm, I'm just going to what's, you know, what's come out publicly since I, on the 20th of January, my access to classified information ended. The point here, though, was all the controversy about the dossier and why we told, uh, why we briefed it. I felt, and I think we all did, the four of us participated and led this was we had a duty to warn uh, the then-president-elect that this thing was out there and what was in it. Jim Comey was particularly concerned from a counterintelligence standpoint because the Russians, it's their practice to use their, use their acronym term, compromise, compromising material, whether it's real or contrived. And we thought that he should know about it, it was out there, and just to beware that perhaps the Russians might use it for leverage. And that, so in the no good deed goes unpunished department, we decided to, as discreetly as we could, given the opportunity we had on that visit to Trump Tower, and neck down to one on one, Jim, Jim and with the president like to tell him about it. On the uh, question of collusion, um, which the intelligence community didn't really assess, um, uh, and you know, you say you don't know whether there was collusion or coordination, but you do talk about parallelism, um, yeah. and uh, talk about what you 
what you mean by that, because it, it also, the way you write about it, makes it sound somewhat sinister. Well, it probably was sinister. Uh, <laughs> well, um, the, the yes, we didn't have any evidence of collusion. Uh, certainly no smoking gun evidence, given the fact that, you know, collusion is not a legal thing and there's no law against it. Um, some would argue that the fact that uh, as a candidate, uh, Mr. Trump was exhorting the Russians to go out and find uh, the alleged missing emails of Hillary Clinton. Well, you know, is that a form of a public collusion? You know, others have to decide that. But that so there's, you know, overt and I suppose covert evidence of of uh, of collusion. Hopefully, uh, Special Counsel Mueller's investigation will resolve this one way or the other because this is a cloud hanging over the country and it's certainly hanging over the presidency. You know, it needs resolution. Are you, to your question uh, about the parallelism, yeah, there is striking, I found, we found, parallelism between what the campaign was doing and saying and what the Russians were doing and saying. It was almost like an echo chamber, particularly with respect to Hillary Clinton personally, her alleged scandals and her alleged maladies, physical and mental. And there was a, a lot of very similar themes struck by things that came from ultimately from the Russians and and the, uh, from the campaign. Are you surprised we're now uh, nearly a year and a half later since you left the government um, that this cloud is still there and we don't have basic answers to these questions about collusion or coordination between the Trump campaign and well, the Russians? Well, uh, I guess if there were absolutely no evidence whatsoever at this point of collusion, that would have come out. Um, but this has turned into a long uh, and apparently somewhat complex investigation. Um, so, yeah, I would have hoped that uh, it could have been resolved before this. Um, but the fact that it hasn't been would indicate to me that, you know, there's more to this than, than we're aware of in, in the public domain. Um, well, is is that some of what you know and um, no. stuff that has no, not I don't, come out? I don't have any uh, special or uh, insider knowledge on any of that. Uh, didn't before I left, and, and I still don't. Right. Um, one uh, uh, last series of questions on a completely different subject, but one that you were deeply involved in uh, as DNI, and that is um, the, the those are questions about Mr. Snowden mm -hmm. in Moscow. Now, you, of course, took quite a bit of heat for uh, your response in, uh, uh, to Senator Wyden's question in uh, March of 2013 mm -hmm. about whether the U.S. government is, uh, is uh, collecting information about Americans. Uh, you famously said not winningly, and um, mm. that turned out to be proven untrue by Snowden's documents. But you uh, actually um, take... Snowden to task on many different matters, including his reliance on your testimony as an explanation well, for why he leaked. Well, first, uh, this is also an FAQ, uh, frankly asked question. Uh, what you didn't recount is the meandering preamble of uh, uh, Senator Wyden's question that he posed at the end of a two-plus-hour hearing on the worldwide threat assessment, which I do recount in the book. And he used the term, now famous for another reason, dossier, twice. And I kind of fixated on that, on that phraseology. I didn't, you know, didn't lock on to the last sentence, which is what you see, see always on the YouTube video. You never see the whole question or hear it. And so I frankly simply didn't think of what Senator Wyden was asking about. What Senator Wyden was Ergo, I made a mistake, but I didn't lie, and there's a big difference, and I've acknowledged that. What Senator Wyden was asking about, of course, was the telephony metadata storage program maintained by NSA, uh, governed by Section 215 of the Patriot Act. He never mentioned any of that. So well, I, he I, couldn't because it was all classified. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the point. Had, he, had I locked on to what he was talking about, had I been on the same page and understood what he was asking about, I'd have still been in a bad place because the program at the time was classified. What I thought about, and again, because of the use of the dossier, which made me think of content, 
was collection on U.S. persons overseas, which is governed by Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, Amendments Act, as it's awkwardly called. Ergo, my application, not wittingly, to me proves I wasn't even thinking about the metadata program. I was only thinking about Section 702. And by the way, I've been trotting up the hill for 20 or 25 years. I've testified dozens, maybe hundreds of times, answered probably thousands of questions, either orally in writing. But gee, just for a change of pace, I think I'll lie on this one question. And by the way, do it on live television in front of one of my oversight committees. Really? Anybody think I really do that? No. So bottom line is, yeah, I made a big mistake, but I didn't lie. As to Snowden, I could almost understand, maybe accept what he did if what he had exposed was only limited to so-called, air quotes, domestic surveillance. But he exposed so much else that did so much damage and continues to, to cause damage. And by the way, if you're a taxpayer, you're paying for re uh, repairs to our collection system. Explain what that damage is, because I think most well, for one, for probably one, don't know. For one reason, for one thing he did that had immediate impact was terrorists went to school on what was published uh, and became immediately more communication security conscious. They changed their modes of communication exactly. as a result. Well, they, they went to secure apps we couldn't read. Mm -hmm. The rate of commercial encryption, which we had forecast out seven years, accelerated immediately. I'll give you a specific case in point, just to illustrate what I'm talking about here. We had an arrangement with the Afghan government uh, to share in what was called what's called a lawful intercept program, whereby the Afghan government, particularly their specifically their Ministry of Interior, monitored cell phone calls in Afghanistan, which is the primary means of communication in Afghanistan. That source was the most important, at the time, the most important source of warning of IED attacks against our troops. The day after Glenn Greenwald published an article in The Guardian about that program, which was exposed to him by Edward Snowden, the Afghan government at the direction of President, then President Karzai stopped it. That was the most important source of warning on IED attacks against our people. That's just one specific example of the damage that Snowden did. When you see and as to your other question about his accusation that my testimony in March, which I don't think he saw, since nobody watched it at the time, it didn't become a big deal until June, was the cause of approximate cause of his doing what he did is baloney because he we have forensic proof that he was purloining uh, classified material at least eight months before that testimony. When you see Snowden... So he's uh, disingenuous at best. When he's uh, giving speeches uh, <clears throat> from uh, on Skype, uh, collecting big bucks from American universities uh, for them, um, what do you think? Well, I do a lot of college and universities. I appear there and talk and, and, uh, and have a lot of engagement with students and some although I find a declining number regarding as a hero for what he did. Um, but I find more and more, uh, since I think the realization of the damage he's done has become more generally aware that to people, uh, not regaled as so much of a hero. Um, James Clapper, thanks uh, for uh, joining us, and um, uh, good luck with Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Thanks for having me. So what'd you think? I think we made some news. I think so, too. Um, I think I'm probably thinking the same thing that you're thinking. Um, yeah, the idea that there was a suspect um, for uh, who leaked the stuff, the, the DNC emails to WikiLeaks. A, a, as he put it, a third-party cutout uh, from the Russians uh, who then gave uh, the thousands of emails to uh, WikiLeaks as as a way to cover uh, cover their tracks, and so that uh, WikiLeaks would then have deniability that they didn't know right. uh, where it came. And just to be just to be clear about this, the reason this is significant is because it's been a major gap in 
the whole Russia story. How did the um, the emails get from the Russians hacking them uh, to WikiLeaks publicizing them? And that's led um, conspiracy theorists and others to suggest um, that it may have been an inside job, uh, that maybe somebody from the DNC leaked oh, it themselves. The whole conspiracy theory around Seth Rich and right. his murder and was – he involved right yeah right exactly so uh, you know the 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 fact that the in US intelligence community thought uh, it knew who it was is significant. Now, it's also worth pointing out that even though Clapper says they were pretty confident at the time, um, that person still has not been identified well, but or we don't, charged. Not identified publicly, but we don't know what Bob Mueller knows about this. I right. mean, presumably, uh, if there was a uh, a person who they thought was a suspect, and and, and by the way, uh, Clapper also said it's someone who was witting, so someone exactly. who... Uh, you know, if he was working, uh, if he's witting, then maybe he, you know, was working with the Russians uh, wittingly. Um, that that at least that suspicion uh, and that that person, uh, that person's name would have been given to Mullen, Mueller, presumably. Right. And, and right. you know, the fact that there hasn't been an indictment doesn't necessarily mean that that's not still a key part of the investigation. Right. And I should say, my personal theory is that um, uh, Mueller has to bring an indictment on the DNC hack itself. It's the one clear federal crime that was committed during the election, uh, and he has not yet charged anybody, presume, starting with the Russians, who did it. Um, and I've also thought that if he's going to do it, he's probably going to do it fairly soon, like by this summer, because right. he doesn't want to take any action, bring any charges, starting in September when it's election season. So right. it's one more uh, development to look for that we will no doubt be discussing on Skullduggery. Thanks to James Clapper and Hunter Walker for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Skullduggery is also now on SiriusXM. Subscribers can catch the latest episode on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 12 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk to you next week.